You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, April 1st. I'm Kat Smith. And I'm Nina Dos. Though the population in New York City jails like Rikers has gone down during the pandemic, violence is up. That's just the culture of Rikers. <laughs> you know, the culture of Rikers is about violence. New data shows English language learners have the highest dropout rate in the city's public school system. New York City is one of like the most diverse cities in the world, and it's not being reflected in what our students are learning. So like students disengage. And it's a strange and wondrous opening day for Yankees fans as the stadium kicks off baseball season. Plus, New York is making a push for electric vehicles. Over the course of a, an EV's lifetime, it's cheaper to own, cheaper to run at least. It's April Fool's Day, which means there may have been a parade in Midtown. Or maybe not. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York City, I'm Haley Zhao. Mayor de Blasio announced the opening of four new community-based pop-up vaccination sites this morning. One site each in Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. All four will run through Sunday. He says pop-up sites are meant to promote equitable vaccine distribution in the city. We're going to continue to deepen this grassroots effort. We find it is what helps people feel comfortable with vaccination as if it's in their own development, in their own community. So you're going to see a lot more of that, a lot happening this weekend. New York State troopers in Albany are getting the state's first batch of body war cameras today. State law requires officers to start recording immediately after exiting their patrol vehicle. The new cameras will turn on automatically when a vehicle's emergency alarm is activated or any time an officer's gun is removed from its holster. The rollout is expected to reach across the state by this fall. Starting today, domestic travelers coming to New York State are no longer required to quarantine. They will still need to fill out a traveler health form with their contact information upon arrival. A mandatory 10-day quarantine is still in place for international travelers. With Easter Sunday coming up, Health Commissioner Dr. David Chakshi says people still need to be careful even if they're vaccinated. Fully vaccinated people can gather with other fully vaccinated people with fewer precautions. But remember, most people remain unvaccinated, and you are not considered fully vaccinated until 14 days after your last dose. CDC issued guidelines suggest people attend religious service online and hunt for Easter eggs outside while wearing masks and staying six feet apart. It's drizzling in most part of New York City. The temperature is in the lower 40s, almost 20 degrees colder than yesterday. If you go outside, bundle up and bring your raincoat. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Haley Zhao. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Kat Smith. And I'm Leila Dos. Since February, Yankee Stadium has been used as a site for COVID-19 vaccination. Today, though, it returns to its former use, baseball. Nicole McNulty took the four train up to the Bronx to see just how excited fans are to be back home. It's Yankee baseball time again. At long last, we might say, opening day is at hand. And the Yankees very anxious to get opening day into the books. That tape is 62 years old, but today feels every bit as exciting outside Yankee Stadium. Gone are the cardboard cutouts of humans in the stands and the piped-in crowd noise of the 2020 season. Today, real-life fans, socially distanced and masked, are back in the seats, but only at 20% capacity. And they might get a little soggy. I'm very excited. It's my first time back since October of 2019. That's Olivia Schmidt. 
She's worked at the stadium for seven seasons. Should be good. The rain kind of sucks, but whatever. It's going to be a crazy atmosphere. It's 10,000 people, but it's going to sound like 50. Some of the fans made a trek to get here and got here early, two hours before the doors opened, like Cameron Nettles and his dad, all the way from South Carolina. There's nothing like the Yankee faithful, so me and 10,800 of my best friends, you can't beat it. It's emotional. I mean, we had a, that six-game season last year, no fans in the stands. I know we missed it, and I know the whole world missed it. So, Welcome to Yankee Stadium. Just if you have a chance, can I just see your ticket and either a negative test or the vaccine, please? I got my COVID test. We got our, I got my license. I got everything. I give them a blood sample if I had to. Fans are supposed to be socially distanced. Inside, people will sit in separate pods in the stands. People are standing pretty close to each other in the growing line in front of the gates. But Michelle Dona doesn't seem too concerned. I think everybody's being safe. And the Yankees are being safe and everybody's being safe. No, I, I feel very comfortable coming here. I'm so excited. And it's outside. But for Karen Ultramare and her son, Nicholas Kulik, this is a homecoming. For 25 years, we're the first people here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a family tradition. My dad passed away when I was uh, like six years old in 1995. And then 1996, my mom surprised me with opening day tickets. And then we've been coming every year since. So it's, it's a tradition. It's something that I love to spend time with my son. And she, he surprised me with the tickets and drove from Cincinnati yesterday to come take me. So I think a little rain's not going to stop us. <laughs> Nothing will stop us. And for others, this day is historic for another reason. <laughs> we just got engaged. This is how we fell in love, was over watching baseball clips, the best of the best. And she's a big Yankee fan, so I was adamant about coming to opening day. Vanessa Williams got down on one knee in front of the stadium and asked Megan Coombs to marry her. And they're obviously elated. She's the best thing ever happened to me. Outside of the Yankees, maybe. (laughs) As long as they win today. Congratulations to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Nicole McNulty, Columbia Radio News. The Biden administration has given New York City the okay to move one step closer to congestion pricing. The plan is designed to cut down on the number of cars on the city's busiest roads and to reduce air pollution. To do so, vehicles entering Midtown Manhattan between 60th Street and Battery Park would pay a toll. New York would be the first city in the U.S. to use such a plan, but there are a lot of questions. There's a federally required environmental assessment of the plan, and it's unclear how long that will take or how much drivers would have to pay. And some experts worry it won't be enough to reduce traffic in a meaningful way. To discuss how to implement the plan effectively and what New York can do to get more cars off the streets, I'm joined by Louis Lee, Assistant Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of Illinois. Louis Lee? Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Now, a handful of other cities around the world already have congestion pricing plans. In London, for example, car, cars pay a flat fee of $15 to enter the central business district. Uh, but critics actually say that the London scheme hasn't done enough to ease traffic. I mean, is there anything New York can learn from what London's already tried? The, the criticism there is that travel times, they're not much better now than they were before they did the scheme. Basically, what I... What I would point out is that they didn't just do uh, the London congestion charts. They also implemented a lot of things that tend to slow down vehicles, like they lowered speed limits 
uh, they put in a bunch of pedestrian and uh, bus facilities and bus lanes, things like that. So, and one way to look at it is that they, they, they lowered the amount of vehicles coming in so that they could use street space for other things. And I think that's what they would probably, probably say in defense of that. Uh, so they do have a lot of uh, kind of benefits that would be beyond just travel time. Uh, now, the city of San Francisco is considering a congestion pricing plan of its own. Los Angeles is studying its traffic patterns to see if congestion pricing is a good fit. Washington, D.C. is also looking into it. Could New York City be a leader on this? Uh, New York City is kind of a prime uh, place to do it first, I think, because of the history of, you know, it kind of almost happened uh, back in the Bloomberg administration and also just uh, geographically. The fact that you have this uh, very dense area that's mainly except that has doesn't have a lot of routes into and out out of it. Uh, it's a little bit harder to do in a place like Los Angeles, where there'd be more more routes that you'd have to cover. I see. So the reason the reason New York City is the leader on this is because it makes the most sense. It maybe the easiest the way the city is set up makes it easy to implement something like this. Yes. Yeah. The geography of the city. Like if you wanted to total, uh, say, downtown Houston or something, there would be a lot of entry points you'd have to cover. Uh, Other cities around the world have managed to reduce traffic uh, without implementing congestion pricing. Paris, for example, has made streets friendlier for bikes and pedestrians. What are some of the other things that New York City could be doing to get more cars off the roads? It's not it's not enough to just do congestion pricing and leave it at that. Right. I saw recently that Paris has this new plan where they're going to get rid of 70,000 on-street parking spaces. Uh, the main issue would be that just I think one of the questions would be how realistic is it that you know New York City would eliminate half of its on-street parking, uh, things like that. I see, I, I see in the news from afar that things that make it harder to drive are often, often pretty controversial there. But a lot of the details aren't hammered out yet. The new toll for personal cars entering Midtown might cost between $12 and $14. Trucks might pay $25. Other details are less clear. Is it bad that we don't know all these details yet? It wouldn't be unusual in the the history of downtown tolling to not know all the details in advance. One of the most important decisions that they do need to make uh, soon is what technology or technologies they want to use, whether or not they're going to use... like easy pass or whether or not they want to use uh, plate reading cameras or uh, both, or if they want to go more advanced and use uh, something like GPS, they, they do need to reach a decision about the fundamentals of how the system is going to be operated. They can, I think they, they can hash out details about like exemptions or the particular toll levels um, once that's kind of decided. That was Lewis Lee, Assistant Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Thanks for having me. President Biden's new infrastructure plan includes a range of climate change initiatives, such as the $200 billion aimed at getting Americans to switch over to electric vehicles. In New York State, transportation is the largest source of greenhouse emissions, more than those from residential and commercial buildings combined. Last year, Governor Cuomo announced another initiative to increase the number of electric vehicles in the state. 
As Haiti Jiao reports, experts say the governor's goal is reachable with some policy changes. John Gilbert is sitting in a shiny dark gray SUV parked on Morningset Drive on Manhattan's Upper West Side. He lives in Queens and drives often. He loves the model he's driving now, but it's just in rental. He plans to get his own car in the next two years, a traditional gasoline car. I prefer always on the gas. In the beginning, the electric is good. After five or seven years, they say, it will be some uh, problem on it. That fear could be a problem for Cuomo because his goal is to have 850,000 electric vehicles on the road within the next four years, 10 times as many as now. But sales of electric cars only make up about 2% of market nationwide, and many buyers have concerns like Gilbert. Steve Burkett is an editor at findthebestcarprice.com. He says one of the main concerns is what's called range anxiety, the fear of running out of power with no charging stations nearby before reaching your destination. As you head into the middle of the country, you're talking about more like, you know, 150 to 200 miles between some charging stations. But Burkett says range anxiety shouldn't be a big concern. For most vehicles, they can make that. They could do this mythical trip that all the EV critics put out of What if I need to go to California from the East Coast in two days flat? I mean, nobody does that. But um, the reality is you can do it at the moment. You're going to have to plan your trip very carefully, and it's going to be along select routes. Burkett says drivers shouldn't worry about running out of power, especially on the East Coast. In New York, the number of charging ports has more than doubled in the past year, and Cuomo aims to reach 10,000 charging stations by the end of the year. That's more than the number of gas stations in the state. Resources for the Future, an environmental nonprofit, says more than half of American car buyers are willing to consider electric vehicles. But as for the other half, many are still nervous, among other things, about the price. But Burkett says as more manufacturers are introducing new electric vehicle lines, their price has become more competitive. You're starting to see them become very similarly priced. Um, And then over the course of an EV's lifetime, it's cheaper to own, cheaper to run at least, because electricity costs less, maintenance is less, no oil changes. If you buy a fully electric car in New York State, you can get up to $9,500 in state and federal incentives, which means many EVs are now in the same price range as traditional gas cars. Deb Pat Kelleher is with nonprofit Alliance for Clean Energy New York. She's optimistic about Cuomo's goal, but she says first, the state needs to change some laws. I think it is doable if we make a couple changes to the way EVs are used and bought and sold in our state. New York State requires all new electric vehicles to be sold through dealerships, but that's not the way manufacturers like Tesla and Rivian work. They've cut out the middlemen and sell directly to customers, which means they're not allowed to sell in the state. Tesla managed to reach an agreement to open no more than five stores, but others are not as lucky. So Kelleher is advocating for a bill introduced in January that would allow direct sales. The bill has been referred to the Senate Transportation Committee. No date has been set for a vote. Haley Zhao, Columbia Radio News. In New York City public schools, more than one in 10 students are trying to learn English. They're called English Language Learners, or ELLs. But nearly a quarter of ELL students drop out before completing high school. Arcelia Martin reports on why ELLs struggle to succeed. Today, Jessica Valencia is wrapping up her last semester at John Jay College. But getting here was an uphill fight. She came to New York from Guerrero, Mexico, and became an English second language student at the High School of World Cultures in the Bronx. Her first assignment was to write about Harry Potter. I'm going to write about Harry Potter in my 
first week. If I, I, I only know how to say one, two, three, four in English and spell my name, maybe. Things didn't improve much from there. In Valencia's senior year, she transferred to Franklin Delano Roosevelt High School, where she passed a standard English proficiency test and was taken out of the ESL classes. And then they throw me to the regular English class because I pass. <laughs> but Wait, I so really, why did why did you put air quotes? Because I never really spoke the language. She credits her success on sheer tenacity. Without it, she knows how easy it is to fall through the cracks. The Division of Multilingual Learners from the New York City Department of Education didn't respond to questions about ELL students' retention rates. But when you ask experts about why almost a quarter of ELL students in New York dropped out last year, they give you a laundry list of reasons. Three issues rise to the top. A lack of cultural diversity in school programs, communication issues, and poverty. Marilyn Mendoza is the education justice organizer with Make the Road New York, an immigrant advocacy group. She says it's important for course materials to relate to students' own life experiences. New York City is one of like the most diverse cities in the world, and it's not being reflected in what our students are learning. So like students disengage. In the ELL program, as students score higher on the standard proficiency test, their language instruction is cut back. Aisa Rodriguez has been teaching ESL students for nearly two decades. She says this makes sense for basic written language, but it also means students have less time to polish up their conversation skills. So many students, she says, just don't feel comfortable speaking up in class. Well, you're not going to feel confident if you've never been taught how to tell an anecdote and a joke, how to give a speech. And when your classmates are unforgiving, it doesn't make it easier. Other, like, students, they will make fun of you. Like, it happened to me. ELLs are more likely to come from low-income families, which means many students work. Jessica Valencia says some of her classmates, on top of being students, were family breadwinners. I mean, you have to survive somehow, so they choose to work instead of learning another language and going to school. It's a choice Valencia gets. They are not learning. They are tired. And they don't even feel confident about, and they don't feel welcome. Of the people I talked to, many said English learners would do better in the schools if there were more ELL faculty and staff, and that a rewritten curriculum would also help. The New York State's Education Department website says schools are now examining and addressing their practices and programs to improve graduation rates among ELL students. Arcelia Martin, Columbia Radio News. And now, the latest from our series, New York Moments. The thing that I want to study is not really common for Asian Americans. My first priority in a major is actually race and ethnicity, and that's like the thing I'm most passionate about. My parents think that I'm going to do pre-law. They're immigrants. They're like, oh yeah, you can go to law school. But I'm not going to. Mario Moshum, student activist at Stuyvesant. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, I'm atypical. When I was eight, like activist was like my dream. I did a lot of like bake sales within my homeroom. And then I like raised a lot of money for like charitable causes. I think that was like what I, okay, I want to be a leader. I don't just want to read the news. Like I want to be a part of the news, you know, and like be a part of all the political action that is happening. And I think I'm really proud to like be a part of like a lot of political change as a young person. And I think that really empowered me to become an activist. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. Podcast available Thursdays at 5 p.m.
You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Kat Smith. And I'm Laila Dos. Coming up, the math behind predicting March Madness. There's a troubling uptick in violence in New York jails. And though travel is limited, here in the city, we may soon have COVID-19 vaccine passports. These stories and more coming up. As more vaccines roll out, many countries, including the U.S. and the European Union, are looking into digital vaccine passports. New York State recently created a vaccine passport in the form of a smartphone app called Excelsior. Vaccine passports could make international travel and public indoor gatherings more secure. But there are concerns over privacy and fairness. I spoke to Dr. Arthur Kaplan, medical ethics expert at NYU's School of Medicine, and asked him first, what exactly is a vaccine passport? There are really two kinds of vaccine passports. One is what you use to travel internationally across national boundaries. We've had that in place for decades. The yellow fever is a problem in many countries, and they demand proof of vaccination against uh, yellow fever to enter. It's been standard. It's been in place for a while. The other kind of passport is vaccine authentication. That's for inside a country, say inside the U.S., It's what you use to prove that you've been vaccinated if you want to get into a private business, a cruise ship, or a sporting event. And what is the range of restrictions that a vaccine passport could put in place for people? Domestically, many, many businesses could demand them as a condition of working there. Others may say customers have to show vaccination to use the gym or get in a restaurant or engage in uh, activities like uh, uh, going to a Broadway show or a concert. We've had many, many industries damaged by fear of getting COVID. If you go uh, to, uh, say, the show or the concert or the sporting event, the way to handle that is to say everybody who works here is vaccinated and everybody who's coming in here is going to be vaccinated. That's going to reopen those events more quickly, regain public trust to go, and I think you'll see a lot of that. And to jump on that, according to a study, of the public has spit 50-50% uh, over vaccine passports and possibly also vaccines, and it crosses ethnic, racial, and socioeconomic lines. So why do you think that is? Well, I think there is resistance to vaccine passports, but the real resistance is to vaccines. I don't think it's the fear of the passport. I think a lot of people are saying, hey, I don't want to have to get vaccinated. So how do you think it could even get implemented? Let's say the federal government does agree How do you think it's actually feasible? Well, the federal government will issue passports for international travel. They'll handle the international issue. But locally, for, say, New York, New York City, it's going to be the states. The states drive policy. And it seems like this crosses also political lines. Uh, It doesn't seem to be just only a blue or red issue. Why do you think that is? Vaccines are always controversial. Some Right-wing libertarian people don't want to be told what to do, and they want to resist vaccine. Plus, many of them were influenced by Trump to believe that uh, you don't need to do anything, that COVID is a hoax. I think the morgues and the graveyards refute that pretty thoroughly, but the belief is still out there. And then uh, you have poor people saying, we don't trust vaccination. We're not sure it's safe. Was it really tested on us? Were these things rushed? Right. And 
And, you know, if you were in Bi- Joe Biden's shoes, you know, he must be dealing with a lot of decisions right now. What would you do? Well, I would start to get ready to issue an international vaccine passport so that travel can take place. I think if you look at other countries, Israel, Denmark, they're starting to do that. We should, too. It's inevitable that we're going to have to have vaccine certification to travel. Many other countries are going to demand it. And we're going to try to demand it for people who come here. We're not going to want people to come from Brazil or France where uh, COVID is out of control unless they have proved that they are vaccinated. So if I was Biden, I'd focus there and get that done. Dr. Arthur Kaplan, medical ethics expert at NYU School of Medicine, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. At the beginning of the pandemic last April, New York City reduced its jail population by 30% to try and curb the spread of COVID-19. At 3,809 inmates, it was the lowest daily population since the 1940s. But even as the number of incarcerated people has gone down, the rate of violence inside city jails has gone up. As Katie Anastas reports, while the pandemic has brought new stress to both inmates and officers, There are also long-standing problems within the Department of Corrections. In the last year, fights and assaults in city jails have increased by a quarter. That includes fighting among incarcerated people and assaults on correctional officers. Darren Mack isn't surprised. Two decades ago, he was arrested for his connection to a robbery. He was charged and sent to Rikers Island. That's just the culture of Rikers. (laughs) You know, the culture of Rikers is about violence. Now, Mac is an advocate for incarcerated people. He says correctional officers are hyper-confrontational. Instead of having like two or four or six jail staff responding to a, a, a incident, they have like 10 to 20 jail staff responding to the incident. And the problems aren't just at Rikers. Last month, New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer put the Department of Corrections on his agency watch list for the fourth year in a row. With fewer people being taken to city jails, the Department of Corrections now employs about one and a half correctional officers per incarcerated person. But the average rate for federal prisons is one officer per 9.3 incarcerated people. So with more officers guarding fewer inmates, shouldn't there be fewer fights? Jeff Mello, who studies jail violence at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, says not necessarily. So much of the research over the last 20 years indicates that that is is not necessarily correct. Jails and prisons are these really um, complex systems. Mello says that complexity comes from a mix of things, like the way a jail is designed. Newer jails often have more open plan designs, making it easier for officers and inmates to see each other. But older jails are often designed differently. Inmates are in cells and might only see officers a few times a day when they make their rounds which can make it harder for officers to maintain authority. The pandemic has also led to more stress. Plus, as total admissions have fallen, the percentage of the jail population with a mental health diagnosis has gone up. A decade ago, a third of the population suffered from mental illness. This year, it's more than half. All of this can be hard on jail staff, too. Benny Bascio worked as a correctional officer for two decades. He's president of the Correction Officers Benevolent Association. Here he is testifying last week before the city council. This committee has heard our cries for help every time we come before you and every time we testify before you, we highlight the horrible conditions our officers are subjected to. 
Bashia says dangerous working conditions and long hours mean correctional officers call in sick. More than 10% of the department's 9,000 officers call in sick every day. Those staff shortages mean long hours for those left on duty. Long hours lead to stress. Stress leads to more violence. Nearly every week, we visit correction officers who are being treated at a hospital for the injuries they sustained from an inmate assault. Officers share similar thoughts on the union's Facebook page. One called a recent triple shift the worst experience she's had in her five years on the job. And she thinks more people are going to quit. More than 15% of the department's officers have resigned over the last two years. When asked about the increase in violence and reported staffing problems, the Department of Corrections did not respond to a request for comment. But at last week's city council meeting, a spokesperson said the department is dedicated to continued reform. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. The semifinals of March Madness begin tomorrow, and across the country, fans are placing bets on the winners. With 32 teams playing a total of 63 games, the number of possible outcomes is vast. As Kate Stockrum reports, mathematicians are seeking new ways to predict March Madness winners and using those methods to better understand Google searches and social media. When you first think of March Madness, you probably think of basketball fans cheering in crowded bars. But you might also think of the way people track wins and place bets in the tournament. Fans call this overall sequence of games, those wins and losses, brackets. They use varying tactics to predict their brackets. Some base their choices on a relatively reliable measure, like a team's ranking. Others use a less reliable one, like a favorite mascot or a parent's alma mater. But if you're Dr. Tim Chartier, an applied mathematician and professor at Davidson College, you use a method called bracketology. So bracketology is a bit of a made-up word. It just means the study of brackets. Bracketology helps Dr. Chartier and his students narrow the dizzying odds around March Madness brackets. If you are literally flipping a coin to pick your bracket, then the odds of a perfect bracket are one in nine. It's the, the term is quintillion. So it's nine with 18 zeros after it. Cedric Fauci is a computer scientist and creator of a website devoted to large numbers. To explain just how big a number nine quintillion is, he uses the example of the volume of water flowing over Niagara Falls. Fauci said it would take a quadrillion gallons of water around 210 years to go down the falls. But since quintillion is a thousand times more than that, it would take 210,000 years for that much water to go down. And that's just one quintillion. We need nine. Dr. Chartier again. Wow, that's really big. What is that number? If you could create one billion distinct brackets per second, never repeat, it would take you 300 years to create nine quintillion brackets. That's how many distinct brackets there are. And that's your odds if it's 50-50. Bracketology works like this. Dr. Chartier and his students create mathematical models which weigh certain factors that have proven to better predict a team's likelihood of winning. For example, they take into account whether you played home or away or on a neutral court and when each team's games are played. Because generally, you want to look at 
when teams are winning as you move closer and closer to the tournament. He says this provides a more scientific way to build a bracket, less relying on mascots and more relying on proven data sets to decide winners. But Dr. Chartier's research wasn't originally about basketball tournaments. It was about data science. And what we were actually interested in was web search. When Google, for instance, returns a query, why is that page number one? It turns out that March Madness Bracketology and Google Search share a common methodology. Both make rankings based on selected data and past history. Whereas Bracketology might pick a likely game winner by focusing on away wins, Google decides what link to show first based on weighing factors like a person's location or recent purchases. And amazingly, this very kind of pop culture March Madness tournament is this sandbox that lets us develop methods with a very small system where you only have 63 games. He says by trying to predetermine the outcome of those games, we can learn how to develop better predictive algorithms overall. And that can lead to improved search results on Google and on social media sites like Facebook and Twitter. Meanwhile, back on the courts and in bars and offices across the country, March Madness semifinals start tomorrow. Kate Stockram, Columbia Radio News. What do Donald Trump Jr., Ted Cruz with a suitcase, and an unknown entity called the QAnon Marching Band have in common? All were scheduled to appear at today's 36th annual New York City April Fool's Day Parade. Renee Roden reports this annual event celebrating the most hoaxish of holidays. According to a press release online, the 36th annual New York City April Fool's Day Parade was scheduled to kick off at noon at the corner of 59th Street and 5th Avenue. But just before the hour, no one there seemed to know anything about it. I didn't hear about it. You didn't come down for the parade? No, I did not come to the parade. I just came to chill. If you see the parade, let me know. <laughs> it's supposed to start in six minutes. This year, the parade's organizers are inviting members of the public to dress up as corporate leaders, celebrities, and to build floats, all to celebrate this year's theme, Deny, Deny, Lie, Lie. There's probably uh, 500 people working on submissions and building the floats and doing the, all the entertainment and the whole process. Joey Skaggs is the chair of the parade planning committee. He says the event began in 1986 as an important contribution to New York City's civic life. It's a necessity. And as, and as, and as the world spins into absurdity, uh, we needed to, to have more absurdity to, to illustrate it. Jokes are medicine. They make us feel better. Jerry Zoltan is a professor of pop culture at Penn State and, as he puts it, a recovering stand-up. Pranks are like the easiest kinds of, of jokes. They, they require no talent. You don't have to memorize a joke with a punchline. But pranks can backfire. Caleb Warren is a contributor to the Humor Research Lab, a project dedicated to the scientific study of what makes things funny. I'm a little bit hesitant to say, it's April Fool's Day, go nuts. A prank has a victim, and it's usually a specific person. Because they're often made at someone's expense, Warren says pranks aren't always as therapeutic as other forms of humor. This type of comedy is very, can be very enjoyable, especially for the prank-er. 
but it's less likely to like strengthen a relationship between the people. It's less likely to lead to emotional benefits. It's less likely to help people cope with a problem. Joey Skaggs, the brains behind April Fool's Parade, says New Yorkers need satire and practical jokes now more than ever. We need we need to be able to express something that we all feel about how stupid people are, how corrupt, how irresponsible, how gullible, and that's what the parade is all about. But while talking about the parade with Skaggs, I began to feel less like reporter and more like comedic foil. So how much of this conversation has been you pulling my leg? <laughs> well, Renee, in the tradition of the April Fool's Day Parade, you are now a participant. From the 36th annual April Fool's Day Parade, this is Renee Roden, Columbia Radio News. And now, in the latest installment of our commentary series, Jack Stone Truett comes to term with his one true love. The love affair began in earnest in middle school. I was a TA for Miss Bennett's seventh grade math class, and I was bored. So instead of doing whatever it was a 12-year-old TA was expected to do, I would head over to the school computer meant for algebra and slyly log on to ESPN.com. Socrates once said, know thyself. Well, I'm here to say, confess, frankly, that college football is my single favorite thing in the entire world. I've foregone hiking trips on perfect August days, ducked out of my brother's wedding dinner to find a TV at the bar, and bailed on countless nights out. To me, there's no better way to take in a crisp Saturday in the fall than spending 14 hours on your couch, watching every snap, fight song, and mascot-suited fist pump. I grew up in Seattle, near Husky Stadium and the University of Washington. But it was those ESPN message boards that radicalized me. I would read post after post from anonymous usernames, fostering utterly irrational but completely sincere animosity for entire groups of fans based on who they rooted for. Do I actually know anyone who went to the University of Tennessee? No. Do I get a kick out of watching them lose because some guy named UT Vol Warrior 98 had an annoying internet persona 15 years ago? Why, yes. Yes, I do. Unlike pro franchises, college teams can't be bought and skipped town. The name on the jersey represents a university, a city, a region. Being a fan of a team makes me a part of that community. When the Huskies win, I feel a part of that victory more than any pro team. Plus, it's a cathartic way to affirm my sense of superiority over those schlubs from other schools. There are more destructive habits to have, sure, but I've never dated anyone who's been enthusiastic about their boyfriend being unavailable every Saturday for a third of the year. For Caitlin, who I dated on and off for a few years after college, it was a deal breaker. I do remember when I found out that like you were gonna choose college football over me. And I was like, what the literal? For the record, I would challenge Caitlin's version of this story. Nevertheless, I've begun to wonder how much longer I can afford my devotion to this ludicrous sport I love so dearly. I'm in grad school in a new city looking to meet new people. And I've begun to question the cost of those 14 hour days. To say nothing of the problems with the sport profiting billions of dollars off college kids while everyone around them gets rich, I simply don't know if I can keep up the commitment while also being a functioning adult. I have a life to live, a career to pursue. I'm 28. All my friends are getting married. You know when people get married? On Saturdays. Often in the fall. But how can I ever let it go? It's been a constant companion in good times and bad growing up. Freshman year of college at Syracuse, I'd come back from parties disillusioned and struggling to meet new people. And there it would be. A 2 a.m. West Coast game still on the air. The most reliable friend of all. 
If I can't stay up to 4.30 a.m. after a lightning delay, only to watch my team lose on the last play, true story, by the way, then what kind of fan am I? But not every relationship can last forever. Grad school and a season reduced by COVID last year had me watching less college football than ever. Like a partner who knows they haven't been their usual self, I'd sheepishly turn on the TV, only vaguely familiar with the important games and storylines. College football was always supposed to be there for me, and I happily returned the favor. Now, friends were texting me about that week's game, aghast after telling them I hadn't seen a single play. But for the first time in years, I went football free for entire Saturdays, and life went on. Next season, I'll go easier on the intake. I've learned to make room for other things in life, like a girlfriend. Maybe I should give Caitlin a call. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Jack Truitt ran our show. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Karen Monterejo, with help from assistant producer Katie Anastas. Senior editor Fei Lu and assistant editor Kate Stockram led our copy team. Arcelia Martin managed our website today, and Haley Zhao brought us today's news. Our instructors Sally Herships, Patty Hirsch, and Ben Shapiro advise our staff. I'm Kat Smith. And I'm Leila Dos. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe.